So pull out your textbook for this class. Ready? It's a single piece of paper. In fact, it's not even the back side of the paper. It's just one side of one paper. Here is our text for the class. Now, we have been focused. Now, I don't want to necessarily feel like we need to go in sequential order. I've seen people teach this class where they just go paragraph by paragraph through the proclamation. And I think that's fine. But those of you who've read it, would you say all paragraphs are of equal worth? I think there are some that are more weighty than the others. And not only that, but it's hard to, I mean, every time I read this, I break it down differently. This is my most recent rendition where I finally said, you know what I see? I see three sets here. I see declarations. Here's a truth that they are declaring. And then I see warnings. And then I see counsel. And that's kind of where we've gone is what was the major warning? And what are the major declarations? And I would suggest that this warning is not the greatest warning. This warning. I would suggest is the most important warning. Where does God place family? In his life, in his plan, in his purposes, where does God place family? Therefore, what does that imply is perhaps the biggest warning for me. Don't put it anywhere else. Don't put family anywhere else. If you want to be part of God, if you want to go where God dwells, if you want to have what he has, then we need to be the kind of people that put family central. So that's where we have focused on. I think one of the biggest warnings is in fact the very first paragraph, that God puts family central. Therefore, can we make an association? I believe this is safe that he is the happiest of all beings who puts family central. Do you see what I'm trying to connect? The more you keep family central, the happier you will be. So where do we go next? We've spent several weeks on that idea of the temptations, especially in our day, to move family out of its central position things that are really going to hurt the success of the family. So I know where I'd like to go, but I'm open to where do you want to go? Let me pitch where I would like to go. I think the skill set should be where we focus next. I believe one of the most profound parts of this proclamation is when prophets, seers, and revel, rev, revelators narrowed down successful families are built on, and then they came up with nine. I imagine that was the end result of a lot of discussion. Why nine? What wasn't? What didn't make it? I can think of several principles that didn't make it. 
Why did they settle on these nine? Do you think that was a quick discussion and they just, oh, those nine are fine? Or do you think they spent hours and hours and hours until finally they said, yes, we're comfortable with this is the nine. And they put their names on the paper as prophets, seers, and revelators saying successful marriages and families are established on, boom, these nine. So I would suggest that's where we go. And let's digest it however fast we want to go or however slow we want to go. What is the skill set of making my family more successful by implementing these principles in my life and in my family's life? That's where I would propose. Thoughts? I like it. Let's hear it. Well, as a person who sometimes feels like I don't fit in like the perfect mold of a LDS family, all those things are really applicable to me and my kids. No matter what your family situation, what's the point? The thing that I love about this is no matter how broken or how perfect your family is, what will make that family more successful? The same nine. In fact, is it safe to say, I'm not, hypothetically, because I am, but hypothetically, I'm not married. I don't have a great relationship with my current family and I'm searching for an eternal companion. Is it safe to say that the best preparation for me to have an eternal family is to focus on these nine principles? That's, I think, the power of what they've done is these are not unique to family situations. They are anyone, no matter what your family situation, you can make it more successful if you implement nine principles. So, sound like a plan? Anyone else want to pitch another idea? Okay, I'm very open to going wherever you want to go if you feel strongly about something. Um, if not, let's go to the skill set. Now, the first thing I want to point out, and I just, <clears throat> when this document came out in 1995, there are, there are few, no, there, I can confidently say there is no other document who has demanded more of my attention than this document in the last almost 30 years, 20, 30 years. And I have thought a great deal about this document and specifically about those nine. And I don't know what year it was. It was more than 10 years later when all of a sudden a light went on and I realized there is a relationship between these nine. And then I saw significance in a pattern. Look at the first two. They belong together, don't they? If you were to match them up as to which one fits with which one, I think the first two fit together in a pattern. Your family will be successful if God is a part of it. And how do you make God a part of your family? Faith and prayer. So I think that's a pair. Now, what's the other two? What's the next two? So faith and prayer is the first pair. What's the next pair? Very related, right? Human relationships. We bump together. We're going we're gonna to hurt each other. Families won't work without repentance and forgiveness. 
And then these three all fit together. Since there's nine, we can't split them up into even pairs, but I think this is a triplet. Respect, love, and compassion are a triplet. And then the last two are a balance. Work and play, work and fun. They're a balance and they fit together. And so what I'd really like to do is just see them as pairs. Now, I don't think we're going to get to prayer today. I think faith could consume us for a long time. But I would suggest to you that the very best way to improve the potential success of your family is for you to have more faith. Now, your husband or your wife is not in the class. Your children are not in the class. Somewhere, someday, we'll have a discussion with the rest of your family, and I'll say the same thing to them. I will say the same thing to your eternal companion. The best way to improve the success of your family is for you to have more faith. But right now, this is my audience. So how about we pause on the proclamation? And we open up the scriptures and we ask, how can I, as an individual, increase my faith? How can I increase my faith? Turn to Luke chapter 17. Now, I would suppose that Peter, James, and John, the early quorum of the 12 apostles, I think it's safe to say that these were not spiritual novices. Would you agree? Peter, James, and John were not brand new to faith. Would you agree? Especially by the time they get to the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. They were not brand new to faith. Uh, I lost my New Testament. That being said, turn with me to Luke. Uh, sorry, I'm going to have to do this one. I can't zoom in on this one, so forgive me. But I will do my best. Luke chapter 17, notice how it begins. Peter, James, and John. After listening to Jesus and listening to him prayer and watching Jesus for a while. Now, this is 17, so where are we in their time with Jesus? Are they brand new to walking around with him? This is Peter, president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, James, John, the Apostles. And what do they say to Jesus? Lord, how do I have more faith? How can I have more faith? So I know this is an eternal family class, but how about we set that aside for just one class and ask, how can I increase my faith? Faith is not something you have or you don't have. Faith is something you do. And if it's something you can do, then you can do it more or you can do it less, right? Would you agree? If faith is an action, then what does it mean to increase my faith? Does it mean to have more faith? 
Not necessarily. It means what? Do more. So what can I do? Now, can I be honest with you? For so many years of my life, I really, really struggled with what is faith. It's, it's easy to primary and Sunday school at it, right? But what does it mean? What does it mean to have more faith? I want you to walk out that door and say, I have a very clear picture of what it means to increase my faith. But for so many years of my life, I don't think I could have put my hands on that. I don't know that I could have said, I know how to increase my faith. So what is faith? And the funny thing is we all have a hard time defining it. Someone will say faith is action. Is all action faith? Okay, so which action is faith and which action isn't faith? And, and I can say that, but the problem thing is, what brings me closer to God? So listening to good music increases my faith. Do you see? And they're all right. All of these are right. All of these are good and right. It helps me to be. And so if I'm more receptive to God, does my faith automatically increase? Is that a guarantee that if I listen to hymns more and asked for more reception of the Holy Ghost, my faith would increase? You see, it's hard, isn't it? It's hard. As soon as you really start pushing the pedal to the metal, what does it mean to increase my faith? Because it's always right, but there's always something that just doesn't sit well with me and is missing. So I don't know how else to do this, but I'm going to present to you the destination of my faith journey. I think every one of us have to struggle with what is faith and how do I have more of it. And so I don't know how I can urge you on in that journey better than maybe just saying, can I, can I show you the destination where I got to? And I am very clear. I'm very clearly saying I do not necessarily want to impose upon you as this is your definition of faith. I think it's a journey we all have to come to. So allow me to be very clear what I'd like to share is my journey to put my hands on faith. What is faith? Now, there's a lot of definitions in the scriptures, right? We've got an Alma 32 definition, Alma 32, 29. And they talk about not being able to see and things that are true. And all of those are wonderful. But for me, I started to put my fingers on what I felt was how to increase my faith when I read the definition I have seen Joseph Smith use more than any other. If you were to compile all the sermons where Joseph Smith trying to teach faith uses a scripture, he uses one more than the others. And the one he uses is Hebrews. So let's go to Hebrews chapter 11. Not that Alma 32 isn't wonderful or Moroni or Ether, but let's go to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now, Paul, 
Uh, I know that's controversial, but if you ask me, Paul wrote Hebrews. I, I stand behind that. Other people disagree. But Paul, I think, is saying, Paul is boiling this down, I think, to a key word. Faith is, first he says, the substance of things hoped for. We'll talk about hope another day. But then Paul says, faith is what? Faith is evidence. Now, for, for the first time, the first time I read that, it struck me as odd because we kind of have the idea that faith is when you don't have evidence. I don't have evidence that God lives. I don't have scientific proof that God lives. Therefore, I have to live by faith. And so we kind of have this idea that faith is the absence of evidence. And then Paul says, faith is evidence. So let me see if I can present what I believe Paul is trying to get to in terms of faith is evidence of things not seen. Go ahead. I was just going to say that it's kind of similar to the whole situation with the brass plates where they're like such a big deal and like people were always like, if I see the brass plates, I'll believe. Or like, give me a miracle, then yeah. I'll believe. Yeah, yeah. But for like, show me. But if you don't even have the faith in the first place, it's not going to make a difference. Right. And, and that's kind of get, gets mixed in there, right? I don't need to see the brass plates. I don't need to see the gold plates to know the Book of Mormon is real. I have faith without the evidence. Okay, and I understand what that's trying to say. But let me see if I can fish a little, see if I can just put some substance on faith is evidence. Now, I want to start with this because I believe this is a symbol of faith. Allow me to use this as a symbol of faith. This is Chichen Itza in the Yucatan Peninsula. Now, tell me, what is the temple? Which portion of this is the temple? Do you climb up these little stairs, go into the door, and then go down into... Is This is the endowment room right there, and there's a ceiling room right there. Is this the temple? No, there is nothing inside this. What is the temple? That right there is the temple. They put the temple on a massive foundation. Now, I am going to boil faith down into two things today. Number one is faith is adding layer after layer after layer after layer of evidence of the unseen. So let me just talk about the birth of faith. The birth of faith is when that first layer of evidence is laid down. Now I'm gonna tell you this, that first layer of faith is not on you, it is on God. Now, Joseph Smith in Kirtland, Ohio, prepared a document for the saints to study and learn and grow, and it was for the School of the Prophets. That document is known as the Lectures on Faith. 
And in the second lecture, lecture two of the lectures on faith, is the story of how is faith born? Where does faith come from? How does faith come into the world? Now, look at the symbolism. If this chapter is on how faith comes into the world, then I'm going to apply it to how does faith come into an individual? How is faith born? And Joseph Smith's declaration is this. Anyone want to read it? This is the birth of faith. Who'll read it for me? Someone read. The object of the foregoing quotations is to show to this class the way by which mankind were first made acquainted with the existence of God. Here we go. Faith is born when? That's when faith is born. Faith is born not when I reach out to him, but when he reaches out to me and touches and connects. And all of a sudden, there is a spark that came from the divine. I have, guess what I have? When he reaches out to me, when he manifests himself to me, what do I have? That moment, the moment he reaches out to me, I have my very first layer of faith. Your faith, I would suggest to you, was born the day you first connected with him and felt a real connection to a divine being that you knew was there but couldn't see. You all have faith because God manifested himself to you. Can I tell you mine? I was seven years old. I was a little seven-year-old, second grade at South Jordan Elementary School, which has since been torn down and rebuilt. My mom had gone to California on a singing tour. She was in a group. And like moms do, they come home with a gift for each kid, right? My mom brought me the coolest gift that I ever received in my childhood. It was a ball. It was a super ball. And it was the most incredible ball I'd ever seen. It's like it picked up momentum as it bounced. It was the bounciest thing, and no one in Utah had one. (laughs) My mom brought it from California. And so I went to school. Now, I'm going to South Jordan Elementary School. Now, South Jordan has a side entrance that's kind of an alcove. The door is right there, and you kind of have to enter this little alcove. So a solid brick wall, solid brick wall, cement floor, solid metal doors, and a pretty solid ceiling. Five very solid surfaces and the bounciest ball I ever knew. We invented the greatest game that has ever been invented. We called it suicide. It was awesome. We had a little stripe. There was a little place where the cement cracked, and that was the pitching mount. And the pitcher, we all kind of spread out in the alcove, and the pitcher got to throw the ball. Now, he had to hit two walls before it hit anyone. But after it hit two walls, if the ball hit you, you were out and had to leave the alcove. And so he's like aiming, thinking, all right, I'm going to get boom, boom, and he misses. And then it just bounces all over. And then when the ball comes to a rest, first person to grab the ball is the new pitcher. 
greatest game ever. Now, the best thing about that game is they couldn't play without me. (laughs) Because I had the ball. Now, tell me what that does to a second grader who's never been the cool kid. I was always the tall kid that sat in the back because, you know, I was I I hit six feet tall in sixth grade. I was always the tall, skinny kid whose mom couldn't find pants that fit. Either they fit in my waist and they went to about halfway through my shin or they fit in the length and about three of me could fit in the pants. So I was always awkwardly dressed. I was tall. I was thin. I was never the cool kid until now. Kids would get to school and say, are we going to play, are we going to play suicide today? And they'd all go and they'd look right at me. And I'd say, we're going to play suicide today, guys. <laughs> Do you see what that ball was? It was my identity. It wasn't just a ball. So one day, the ball gets hit, thrown there and goes out into the field. And 30 little second graders go rushing out trying to look for it. And we couldn't. And as time passed, they would just start to shuffle off. And I knew if I lose this ball, can you feel the desperation in a little seven-year-old heart? If I lose this ball, I lose my identity. And pretty soon I was alone in that field and no one else was there. And I knew that if the bell rang and the fourth graders came out, I'd probably never see my ball again. And so I said a little seven-year-old prayer. Heavenly Father, help me find my Super Bowl. And I'm sure he smiled and chuckled a little bit. There were nations at war and people's lives hung in the balance. All these prayers coming at him. And here comes a little seven-year-old saying, Heavenly Father, I lost my Super Bowl. Can you help me find it? And as soon as I said, amen, I'm telling you the honest truth. As soon as I said, amen, I was standing above a weed and I could see that there was something underneath the weed and I pushed the weed aside and standing at my feet when I said amen was my ball. And I picked it up and I said, thank you. Oh, thank you, Heavenly Father. And I swear to you, I heard a voice or felt a voice, I don't know. And he said, you are welcome. And I knew he was real. I knew he was real. And I knew I was his son. And I knew he cared. Now, do you see what happened that day? What happened that day at South Jordan Elementary School? God manifested himself to me and I have evidence. I have evidence. I know he lives. I have evidence. So if you want to increase your faith, number one, grow your evidence. Add layer and layer and layer. Now, the thing is, when I have one layer of faith, 
Now how do I call upon him? Tell me how I pray. My prayers are different, aren't they? Now I'm different, and I call on him with greater urgency and greater confidence, which is going to cause what? More manifestations. And now he and I began a relationship back and forth that started when he reached out to me. And now because he reached out to me, I reach out to him. And he reaches out to me, and I reach out to him, and I reach in. And that is how my faith continues to grow. I am seeking evidence of him knowing me, loving me, and caring about me. And every time that is manifested, I make a mental note. I let it resonate in my soul. I keep a journal. I write it down. And when I partake of the sacrament, those are the things I think about. I like to think of Jesus in Gethsemane, but I love the phrase where he said, remember this moment that I was with you. I count my layers of evidence as often as I can to remember there is a key I keep on my key ring to remember one of the most sacred experiences of my life where he manifested himself in a miraculous way to me. Increase your faith by growing your evidence and leaning and trusting it and remembering it as often as you can. Why do we testify? What's the whole point of standing up and testifying? It's to remember the evidence that I have and to share it with other people. Faith is a, a mountain of evidence. Each one of those a different layer when God manifested himself to me. It would be cool, I, we don't have time because like, I want to get to number two, but it would be wonderful to go around the room and say, tell me a time God manifested himself to you. Those are the layers of your faith. Now, number two. Why would the Aztecs in the Yucatan Peninsula build a temple like that? Why would they do this on that spot? If this is the temple, they could have eliminated a whole lot of effort and just simply put that on the ground. Why in the Yucatan Peninsula did they build a temple that looks like that? We're always told that we need to look up to the Lord. Okay. Symbolism. I like that. Symbolism. I love it. I think that's true. But why the Yucatan? That would be true everywhere. Why the Yucatan Peninsula? I don't think, I think there were lots of temples in ancient America that didn't survive. This one survived. Why did they build it like this in the Yucatan Peninsula? Symbolism, yes. But why? What happens in the Yucatan Peninsula? Earthquakes. Ring of fire. What comes in from the Gulf of Mexico every single year? Hurricanes. Floods. Fires. In other words, why did they build a temple like this? Because what did they know? It had to survive the elements. So number two of your faith 
is it is going to be beaten up. Faith is going to be tested. Therefore, number one is to have evidence. What do you think number two is? Hold on to that evidence when the storm hits. Let me, let's read from the words of C.S. Lewis. I love how he worded this. My, one of my favorite definitions of faith is C.S. Lewis's definition of faith. Let me read. I used to assume that if the human mind once accept a thing as true, it will automatically go on regarding it as true until some real reason for reconsidering it turns up. That's logical, right? Once I accept something as true, it stays in the vault and nothing changes. In fact, I was assuming that the human mind is completely ruled by reason. Makes sense. But that is not so. For example, my reason is now he died in the 60s. So bear with the time period. My reason is perfectly convinced by good evidence that anesthetics do not smother me and properly trained surgeons do not start operating until I am unconscious. But that doesn't alter the fact that when they have me down on the table and they clasp their horrible mask over my face, a mere childish panic begins inside me. I start thinking I'm going to choke and I'm afraid they will start cutting me up before I am properly under. In other words, I lose my faith in anesthetics. It is not my reason that is taking away my faith. What is it? In fact, It is not reason that is taking away the faith. On the contrary, my faith is based on reason. It is my imagination and my emotions, and I'm going to add, and add another word. It is my fears. It's my fear. The battle is between faith and reason on one side and emotion and imagination and fear on the other. Now, just the same thing happens about Christianity. Ready? What happens when you join the church? What happens when you join the church? I am not asking anyone to accept Christianity or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints if the weight of evidence or if his best reasoning tells him that the weight of evidence is against it. That is not the point at which faith comes in. God is not asking you to believe something that doesn't make sense. That is not an act of faith. Well, it doesn't make sense. We'll just believe it anyway. That is not faith. He does not. If your best reasoning says the weight is against it, that is not the act of faith. But supposing a man's reason once decides that the weight of the evidence is for it, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? I can tell that man what is going to happen to him in the next few weeks. There will come a moment when there is bad news or he's in trouble, or he's living among a lot of people who do not believe it, and all at once his emotions will rise up and carry out a blitz on his belief. Or else there will come a moment where he wants a woman, or he wants to tell a lie, or he feels very pleased with himself, or he sees a chance of making a little money in a way that's not perfectly fair. Some moment, in fact, at which it would be very convenient if Christianity were not true. And once again, his wishes and his desires will carry out a blitz. Now, faith. Now, here it is. Here's the definition. Faith in the sense in which I am here using the word is the art of holding on 
to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your fears, emotions, moods. Faith is the art of holding on to what your region says is true. Faith is the art of holding on to the promises. So number one, gather more evidence. Grow your evidence. Reach out to God constantly. Seek your heavenly Father. Seek to connect with Him. Put yourself in positions where I can receive Him. Now, Sister Bowers was talking about increasing my receptiveness. That's so He can connect with me. I'm going to do all I can to seek Heavenly Father in my life so that He can connect with me and my evidence will grow. But then the test will come. My emotions will change. My fears will rise up. And the way you increase your faith is you hold on in the dark. You hold on when your emotions say it's not going to happen. And you hold on to the promise that it will. Do you see a tangible way to think of faith? Let me give you a couple evidences. Let me give you a couple examples. Let me give you a personal one, then we'll turn to the scriptures. No one comes out of high school and doubts whether or not there's an eternal companion out there for them. When you're 12, when you're 13, yeah, I'm confident. I'm totally confident there's an eternal companion out there. And most people have it written into their patriarchal blessing. There's a promise of an eternal companion. I totally trust that. And then some people start dating. And they start to say, um, I wouldn't marry any one of these people. And some people turn 24 and 25 and 26. Now, here comes the moment. Ready? The older I turn, what begins to happen? My fear. I start to fear. I start to doubt. Now, faith is the art of holding on to what you know is true even when you're afraid. I trust the promises. Let me show you a couple scriptural examples of faith. Let's start with Joseph. Bless his heart, when did Joseph Smith show a lack of faith? When did Joseph Smith show a lack of trust in a promise? Joseph is translating the Book of Mormon. Now, total pet peeve of mine, we affectionately say that he lost 116 pages. Wrong. He did not lose 116 pages. He lost a whole lot more than that. The replacement text 
was 116 pages. If you look at the printer's manuscript, the replacement that Joseph Smith lost the book of Lehi, and it was replaced with 1 Nephi through Omni and the words of Mormon. So the very next chapter would be Mosiah chapter one, right? Guess which page of the printer's manuscripts Mosiah chapter one begins on? 117. So the replacement text was 116 pages. The text he lost was more than that. Some people estimate based on some comments made in church in the records is that Joseph may have lost as many as 300 pages yeah. of scripture. Just to clarify, so, so like the second time he, trans, he had to translate it again? Yes, and that's where he translates the small place. Remember how the Lord was prepared? The first part of the Book of Mormon that was lost was Mormon's abridgment of Lehi to King Benjamin. It was replaced by the small plates of Nephi's writings to King Benjamin because the Lord knew who he would lose it. Now that's a big boo-boo, right? Why did he lose them? Tell me why he lost them. Did he think it was a good idea? Did Joseph Smith think it was a good idea to lend them to Martin Harris? So why did he? He was afraid that Martin would leave and take his money with him. Who was financing this whole thing? Who eventually pays the $5,000 for the first printing of the Book of Mormon? Martin Harris. So he was afraid. If I don't do this thing, then I'm afraid Martin will leave. He based that whole decision. Lending the, the manuscript to Martin Harris was based on a promise or a fear. A fear. Now, what was the promise? What had been the promise from the very beginning? And what was the rebuke when he lost the pages? If Martin had left, if Martin had taken his money and gone home, then I would have sent someone else. So in rebuking Joseph, turn to section three, verse five. What did the Lord say? In rebu rebuking Joseph Smith, who based that decision out of fear, he said what? It's a beautiful verse in verse five. You should have remembered the promises. You should have remembered the promises. The promise was that I'm going to make sure this happens. Now tell me how I live that. Every one of you will face a moment where I'm going to make a decision because I'm afraid. I'm afraid that this is the best that it's ever going to be. And I doubt the promises. The way you make your family more successful is in those moments you hold on to the promise. You hold on to the promise. Now, what's, what perhaps in some cases, I don't want to judge anyone, but perhaps what are, some, what are in some cases a reason people aren't marrying or they're putting off marriage or they're putting off childbearing? Fear. Fear. 
I can't. Blah, 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 blah. And the way we make families more successful is we have more faith. And that means in that moment of fear, you hold on to the promise. I trust his promise. I think it's also connected to my oil file. It says faith on it. Because you can have the faith that he can, but not necessarily that he will. Mm -hmm. Now I'm going to define... That things will go work out in the end. Yeah. But maybe right now, they won't go the way you're going. And I'm going to define that as hope. Faith is, I know he can. Hope is, I know he will. And we'll save that for another day. But either way, either way, it still works, right? Hold on to the promise that he will, that he can and that he will. Jesus has promised to save you. He has promised to save you. But tell me how many of you in your fears and your doubts about yourself wonder if he actually will. Therefore, you are losing your faith. Remember the promise. Why did he atone? To be able to save you. And now all of a sudden, it's your doubts. Your doubts in yourself that are causing you to let go. Trust the promises. Move forward trusting the promises. One last example. We'll paraphrase this because we're running out of time. The night Jesus walked on the water, as soon as he approached, he said three things. Be not afraid. Be of good comfort. It is I. Be not afraid. Peter said lovingly, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. Can I come out of this storm and be with you? And Jesus says one word. Same word he says to anyone who wants to walk with him. What did he say? Come. Now, how much confidence does Peter have in Jesus' promise? Jesus just said, come out of the boat, Peter. Come out of the boat. Come walk with me. How much confidence does he know? What does he know about Jesus? All of his experiences, everything. How many layers of faith does he have? And because of that, what does he do? Does he reach over and test the water with his foot? If that's the ha- is it solid if that's the case? No. So based on layer and layer and layer of evidence, what does Peter do? He jumps out of the boat. Fully confident that the Lord gave him permission to come and that the Lord's going to make good that promise. And that he's going to help me. He's going to make this solid and I'm going to walk to him. I trust him. He said, come, and I'm coming. And for a moment, his foot hit solid ground. And then tell me what happens. There's a scripture in Matthew 14 that says, when he saw the wind boisterous, he feared. In other words, instead of looking at Jesus, instead of trusting the promise, he looks where? He looks at the storm. 
and he doubted the Savior's promise. He feared. And as soon as he feared, he sank. He cries out, Lord, save me. And Jesus grabs him and says what? Jesus grabs him, pulls him up and says, O ye of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? Why did you let your fears cause you to sink? How many times have you made a decision out of fear? I don't think that's going to happen. Therefore, I'll choose to do this as a backup plan. You want to have a stronger, more successful family. Increase your faith. And the way you increase your faith, I would suggest is grow your evidence, seek him, put yourself in a position to hear him more repeatedly, pay more attention to the moments where he connects with you, write them down, remember them, grow your layers of evidence. And then when doubt and fear come, hold on. It would have taken an incredible amount of faith to say to Martin, who's paying for everything, no, Martin, you can't have them. That would have been scary, wouldn't it? But if he had held on to the promise in spite of his fears and Martin leaves, the Lord sends someone else. Now, luckily, we have a great lesson for us to learn from, and the Lord was prepared for that, and He always will be. But I just bear you my testimony. If you want to have more success in your family, whatever its current structure, have more faith. Grow your evidence and hold on in the dark. That is my witness to you in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.